0: Howdy, howdy, howdy. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land. But before we get into the content, I want to remind you that this show is sponsored by Ammo.com, our libertarian pals who have all the ammo that you need. And uh, I can prove that they are, in fact, libertarians just by pointing you to their website where they have hosted articles and content they generate talking about issues of the day that impact your personal liberty, as well as giving 1% of every single sale. That is the Gross revenue, by the way, 1% of gross sale revenue, not net, to Liberty and personal Liberty themed charities, which you get to pick at checkout. So, not only are they a great resource for you to get all the ammo you need, but also a great resource for helping forward the libertarian cause. And through a link from this show, ammo.com forward slash lions of liberty. You can get $20 off in order of $200 or more. So please support Liberty, support our podcast. I will give you the Liberty Ammo. Ammo Ammo.com can give you the real thing. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. All right, welcome to Electric Liberty Land proper, everybody. Hello, I am Brian McWilliams, your lovely host, and this is Electric Liberty Land episode number 107, meaning you can find all of the show notes for the multitude of topics we'll be hitting on today at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL 107. And by the way, at the top of the show, I want to remind you that not only should you visit our sponsor, but damn it, you should become one of our patrons. And you could do that by going to lionsofliberty.com forward slash Patreon or skip the middleman being our website and go to patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. See how that works? You just reverse them. They work both ways. And uh, you'll get a lot of extra content from us. You get conspiracy corners. You get degenerate gamblers. You get all sorts of fun activities, including very special libertarians in living rooms, drinking liquor shows that we record just for our pride members. And uh, yeah. Plus, you get some free gifts for signing up. What's not to love? All right, guys, so let's get into the show today. It's kind of, you know, I've got uh, a little tight on time just because I've had a very busy day today and uh, I've got family coming into town this week, meaning I have to clean the rat's nest that is my house after the holidays, the holiday parties, and uh, the Christmas tree, which, yes, still remains standing. John Odermatt, I remember, posted a poll on Facebook about it. My tree is still up. Although I have been de-decorating it, undecorating it, I don't know, whatever it is. I've been stripping it of decorations and uh, taking down all of the various Christmas uh, paraphernalia from around my house, taking my lights down off my house. Just a massive time-sucking pain in my ass. and uh, But, you know, you got to do it. Because my sister's coming here. My my goddamn Brooklyn, well, now she lives in Queens, but my, my very much in the bubble Social justice warrior, socialism embracing sister is coming. Now, I don't know for sure that she's socialism embracing, by the way. I've not talked to her about Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and her absolutely moronic ideas, uh, some of which I'm going to get into. I think probably second topic, we're going to get into her ideas on the tax rate. But uh, anyway, still got to keep the house clean. Doesn't matter how uh, brainwashed. Your sibling might be that's coming to visit and see your house for the first time. So there you go. Anyway, so as Willy Wonka said, so much time, so little to see. Strike that. Reverse it. And we need to jump in hardcore here. I think it's like I I don't even know where to start, really, because um, we've got a wide-ranging bunch of topics here. But I think we'll start off on something that's, that's really been bothering the living shit out of me. And that is... All of these completely morally bankrupt, disingenuous media outlets, all these liberal media turning on Rand Paul and jumping on this story that a man who was attacked viciously from behind while he was minding his own business and mowing his lawn in supposedly what was a quote unquote guy who snapped this man, what was it, uh, Remy or something like that, snapped over lawn clippings. And attacked Rand Paul. Now, while, hey, people have lost their shit over much dumber things than long clippings, hard to believe that Rand's stance, his uh, political affiliation, and his outspokenness didn't have a little something to do with that, with the very liberal and Trump-hating Remy-whatever-his-face was. I'm not even, I can't remember the guy's name, and really, who cares? So after he's viciously attacked, which the media could not take more glee in, And any number of articles were written in Vox, and I think the Atlantic basically say, oh, what was it? Uh, Esquire, I think, wrote a lovely one talking about how wonderful it was that Rand Paul was attacked and how didn't we all want to attack Rand Paul just for, you know, because God forbid somebody's free market, somebody's pro-capitalism, somebody's pro-liberty in America, you know, can't have that in 2017 or whatever it was. But they write all these articles about, oh, poor Rand Paul, who gives a shit? We shouldn't pity the man. And now the man who was viciously attacked to repair a hernia suffered during this completely unwarranted and blindside attack from a madman decides that he wants to go to Canada to get his hernia surgery taken care of by what is one of the absolute leading facilities for hernia surgery. They are literally a hospital just for hernias. So I guess there must be a lot of demand for hernia surgeries out there. God knows I thought I'd busted a hernia sometimes trying to take a poop too fast. You know, when you back in my dating days, you got somebody waiting outside the bathroom. You know, you want to get back to her. You don't want her to know that you're taking a dump. So you get in there and you got to use those abs, man, and push it out fast. So she thinks you're just kind of taking maybe a little long pee. Maybe you shook, uh, shook off a few more times, but you certainly weren't taking a shit in there. Anyway, became very good at that. But surprised I did not get myself a hernia somewhere along the way. Anyway, no idea how many of these hernia surgeries are based on trying to take too, uh, too many fast craps. But this place, being one of the leaders, and it's called Shoulders Hernia Hospital, a name which is confusing because I would presume they do mostly shoulder surgeries there. But Shoulders Hernia Hospital, they are a private hospital and emphasize private hospital. So you have to pay to go there no matter what. And Ryan has chosen them because they don't use mesh in 98% of the cases and the hernias. They do a natural tissue technique. So you're not going to have a foreign body embedded in your in your lower abdomen, keeping you in place, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. Figure if you've got the wherewithal, you've got the funds to fly to Canada, maybe use them for frequent miles, go and you're going to pay cash for the service. Go ahead and do it. And all these people are are attacking Rand Paul, like I said, this morally decrepit media we've got here that can't wait to jump at the opportunity to provide some people with number one, completely false information, because they're saying that this somehow has, you know, has something to do with Rand trying to save money by going to Canada and nothing to do with the fact that this is to take advantage of the arguably the leaders in hernia repair surgery in the entire world. So nobody nobody tries to mention that. They just say, "Oh, Rand Paul's skipping out because he wants to go to Canada." As if and, and by the way, as if socialized medicine in Canada is going to help Rand Paul specifically and how this this use of a hospital in a Canada, which happens to have socialized medicine, meanwhile, people by the way also have supplemental insurance for pharma, for dental, Uh, The basic costs of the healthcare are covered, but they've done multiple studies showing that the actual level of healthcare is quite low. And just like every other country that has this, you get bogged down once you try to get anything regarding a specialty. Not to mention that, but also the province spends something like 80% of their budget, every province in Canada spends like 80% of their budget on healthcare costs, and they're still going bankrupt. Anyway. So these media they try to make they try to make some correlation between Rand Paul opting with his own money to travel somewhere to see a specialist and have a surgery prepared or prepared performed excuse me now if anything this proves Rand Paul's point of view it doesn't undermine his view of socialized medicine as being substandard it doesn't disprove his view of the Chromany capitalism that's taken place in regards to insurance, in regards to the government being involved in healthcare, which has driven the costs up to the level that they currently sit at. It doesn't undermine Rand's view that you should not even need to have insurance per se, or if you do, maybe it's catastrophic insurance, and we need to go back to a day where a direct doctor-patient relationship exists. And what we've seen, Mark Claire's had multiple doctors on their shows, which have direct doctor-patient relationships. You pay as you go. You don't deal with insurance companies. And you know what? It's fucking vastly cheaper. Every single one of them. So in what way does Rand opting to use his own personal finances to travel to Canada to see a specialist undermine his views in any way? It doesn't. But from every single headline you'd read, you wouldn't get that. Every single headline buries the fact that this is a private hospital that's not involved in Canada's socialized healthcare in any way, shape, or form. They bury that at the very bottom of the paragraph or the very bottom of the story, not even the paragraph, forget that. And of course, every single story has to start with the line that Rand Paul is in opposition of socialized healthcare. In a free market, and Rand Rand Paul is a free market capitalist. In a free market... This is the way it works. Someone has a service. They have exceptionally good service. So what are you going to do? Oh, well, I'll choose to use the money which I have earned. And I will now use my free will to go and visit this service. And I will voluntarily pay them money, whatever the monetary demands they have for this specific service which I require. I will hand my money to them voluntarily and we will have an exchange. That's the free market working. The problem, of course, is that the free market does not exist in the way in which we would hope in regards to healthcare in America or really in virtually any country. So Rand Paul is not a hypocrite. Rand Paul is not somebody who, who, should, who deserves to be uh, lambasted, have his name drugged through the mud as some sort of uh, example of the hypocrisy of right-leaning people or libertarians. Not that Rand Paul is a libertarian, mind you, but he is libertarian-leaning. In fact, if anything, Rand Paul should be celebrated as someone that's taken the initiative of Iman himself to go and use the free market, to go get a specialized service that's going to repair his hernia in the best possible way and allow him to fucking return back to his duties faster than arguably you would have if you went through a more traditional way of doing it or had the mesh implanted. Because if it's got mesh in there, it's probably going to take you longer to heal because you've got a foreign body in there rather than just having your own tissue knit back together. So just, I just want to get that off my chest right off the bat. All right. Now, while we're talking about Canada, I want to ta- tell, oh, and also, you know what? I want to add one more thing in here. Tim. Um, when we're talking about health insurance, we're talking about the unaffordability of it. And they're saying as, as a socialized medicine, as the government involvement makes everything better. Well, there's a nice little story that was reported in Reason. And it was a woman was hit with $20,000 in a surprise bill after she went to the emergency room in San Francisco. And of course, what do you think happened when she went to the emergency room? Right? And she has health insurance, has health insurance. Well, the doctors brought her in. They said, oh, you hurt your arm because she had you know, fallen off her bike, something like that. You hurt your arm? Okay, we're going to put it in a splint. No surgery, no cast, no uh, extra repairs that had to be done, no invasive surgery, no fractures, nothing. They put her arm in a splint. They gave her some pain medication, which in all likelihood was just you know strong Tylenols, you know the 500 milligrams rather than the normal stuff. And they sent her on her way. And for that, she was charged over twenty thousand dollars now, like I said she's got health insurance now this place was out of network, but why would the cost be that high for such a simple simple procedure which I'm sure she waited five hours in the uh, fucking emergency room too because I bet when i <laughs> I can't remember if I told you guys the story about when I made it to the emergency room I'll save that for another time but when I had to go, I've only gone once, and it was for a horrible horrible thing that happened to me but Nothing life-threatening. I had to sit there for approximately four hours before anything happened. And that seems to be the average wait time from, from talking to other people. So this chick goes, she sits for four hours in the emergency room, finally gets somebody in. They say, oh, will yeah, put your arm in a splint. You know, you probably have a little sprain. Here's some medication. Go home. $25,000 later, she gets this bill. And they look into this and say, why is this so high? Why is What is the hospital setting this rate? You know, this, this hospital is trying to gouge people by setting a rate that's this ridiculous? Over 24,000, $24,074.50. Why is it so high? Well, it turns out that Zuckerberg General, this hospital, isn't gouging people because they necessarily want to gouge people, but because the San Francisco Board of Supervisors set that cost. As if the Board of Supervisors has any goddamn clue what an actual medical process should cost. This is just what they're guessing things should cost. Not based in real-world market solutions, not based in any sort of technological advances, not based in the actual uh, physical cost of any of these. uh, The splint, which is, let's say, $20 at CVS, and some Tylenol extra strength, $4 at any drugstore. (laughs) So these, these, these San Francisco Board of Supervisors, though, the same Board of Supervisors, which has without a doubt destroyed the city of San Francisco by putting in policies which have backfired over and over again from housing to the homeless to uh, taxation and clearly in, in regards to medical services. And the only reason that these costs are this high is because San Francisco argues that they have to have these costs so astronomically expensive because that then provides extra coverage to go towards services for people that can't afford it, you know the homeless that walk in there, immigrants that come in there, the poor, etc, all of these people that are covered by this massive net they're trying to throw out there, and which directly are leached off of expenses from and taxation from people like Miss Dang here, who is the uh, unfortunate recipient of the twenty four thousand dollar emergency bill, four thousand of which was paid for by her insurance so you know, just when we're talking about healthcare, it's just, it's so complex and it's, it is one of those difficult things to tackle when you get into the micro level of it because it's just so many agreements, so many governments involved, so many insurance companies involved. It's like layers upon layers upon layers, which has been built up in this massive bureaucracy over the past 20 years where it's difficult to cut through it to see where the bullshit stream is actually coming from. You know, it's, it, and it always comes on from on high, by the way. As they say, I'm got cursing a lot in this episode, but you know, whatever, deal with it. It's raining in LA. It's washed away my inhibitions as far as cursing goes, but shit runs downhill. And not, you know th- this is never more clear than we look at how the government interacts with people on an everyday level and how we get consistently shafted in the name of progress, in the name of kindness, or in the name of doing the greater good. And San Francisco, Seattle, and Los Angeles are prime examples of that. Now another thing I want to get into too, while we're talking about Canada and uh, moving on from healthcare, but into overall Canadian tax rates, uh, Alexia, oh, no, Alexandria, excuse me, Ocasio Cortez has been spouting the seventy percent tax rate number, as saying, "Oh, this is what we need to tax the rich, because God, we'd have to we have to strip all those bastards of any incentive that they have to make money. How dare they keep so much of the money that they've earned?" And how dare they impact society by providing so many people with employment and opportunity, with creating business, with creating salaries for the working man? How dare they keep that hard earned money? And there, you know, if you remember I was listening to a Tom Woods show, I think it was uh, fairly recently within the last week, where he had taken down the notion of this optimal tax rate at 70 percent. Paul Krugman was talking about how, oh, it's been backed up to 73 percent. So some of the top economists in the world think that and debunking that. So I'm not going to go into it too deeply, but essentially what you find in every single circumstance is that even back in the, you know, in the the 40s, whatever Ocasio-Cortez is referencing, I think think it was in the 50s, the optimal tax rate or the the highest tax rate, she says, oh, it was 70 percent. Then nobody was paying it zero people were actually paying 70%. You find that after all the deductions, after everything else that was going on, people were really paying something around 35%. And that's consistent across the board in any time frame where that that tax rate existed. And even if you project it forward, we look at the, the, how many times can we hear the Democrats whine about the fact that the rich don't pay their fair share of taxes because so many times the rich find ways to get out of paying tax rates. And in fact, they pay less than the working man. So if that's the case, liberals, if that's the case and that's the truth, then why would we think that simply increasing the amount of tax that they're supposed to pay would encourage these people to actually pay the taxes? If they already know how to get around it, there's already loopholes in place, so they're not going to be paying even whatever 38%. Why the fuck? Would they not find a way not to pay 70% of their taxes? And with that, we look to Canada because FEE, an organization I do love, and you can find their stuff at FEE.org, fee.org eorg uh, They've written a nice little article talking about how Canada already increased their tax rate. Nothing to nothing like the 70% insanity that Alexia, o, or Ale- Alex- <laughs> Alexia I can't stop calling this bitch Alexia, AOC. I'll just call her AOC. Nothing like the 70% AOC is touting, but he is uh, Trudeau raised the tax rate from the highest level was 29%. He raised it to 33% after he took office in 2015. However, wasn't aware of a concept called the Laffer curve, L-A-F-F-E-R curve. Essentially, turns out that there's only a certain point wherein you're going to maximize the revenue point, right? And after that, you're gonna surpass that little that sweet zone, and it drops precipitously after that point. And that that sweet zone, essentially, well, you know, I object to any taxes, and I prefer that you know we're tax-free society. As taxation is in fact theft. However, the sweet spot for most people is going to be that area wherein they are taxed to the point where they say this is an inconvenience. I'm not happy about the taxes I'm paying, but. I could understand how they're paying for X, Y, and Z. My kids are in public school, whatever it might be. And they say, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and pay them. I still live a fairly comfortable lifestyle. It's not in, it's not infringing on my ability to, uh, to perform uh, daily tasks. It's not infringing on my ability to live a lifestyle, which I have become accustomed to by providing money to myself through whatever industry they might be in. However, when you get past a certain point and we're seeing this happen in new, places like New York City where the rich are fleeing because they've raised the tax rate to the point where, just like the laughter curve shows us, it is now no longer somewhere in the range of convenience to pay it. And in Canada, you're seeing the same thing because the rich, the people that they're ca- taxing now, and you know these are people, the, the tax rate, this is encompassing people that are like, and up. So we're not talking necessarily millionaires here. We're talking about people that are making, probably in Canada, that's uh, probably upper class, I would say. Not like here in Los Angeles, where you need to make about $125,000 or $250,000 as a household to be solidly middle class. But in Canada, I'm sure, $140,000 probably goes a long way. Now, granted, that might be in loonies. sure it is. But you're talking about people that are probably solidly within that strata of small business owners or people that are working professionals again we're not talking about the ultra rich but we're seeing that as you raised this tax rate to 33% which was expected to raise about 3 billion a year in revenue what we ended up seeing happen was that whoops they actually lost 4.6 billion so they actually took in far less money than they expected to why because people are shifting their money around. They're finding ways to escape this extreme level of taxation. And that, and I'm saying this is extreme. 33%, I think, is extreme. <laughs> if they're, again, projecting this forward, if you actually think the rich are going to pay 70%, if you think they're going to say, oh, that's fine, they're going to stay in the country and pay that, you don't think they're going to simply go out of their way to incorporate, to find other tax loopholes to jump through, you don't think they're going to start simply hiding that money away and finding different ways to to shift it around among different businesses and companies so that they don't have to pay 70% of that income. I mean, it takes a very special mind. I'll just leave it at that. A very special mind to believe this nonsense. And uh, consistently, what shocks me about progressives and the liberal mindset is how these people continuously can buy into this pie-in-the-sky nonsense and not ever come to the realization that the world does not operate in this way. That there are counter-reactions to any plan you're going to put in place. And just look at history for fuck's sake. When you've got these extreme tax rates, when you've got the rich being being used as, uh, as you know, pigs for the slaughter, being farmed for their meat constantly... You've seen it in other countries, too. I mean, I think at one point in time, uh, France had a tax rate of some 70% or 75%, and people were fleeing the country there, too. Yeah, I just fact-checked myself. They had a 75% tax rate put in back in 2012. And, uh, of course, what did we see happen? Gerard Depardieu fled the country. H- uh, LVMH luxury boss Bernard Arnault fled the country. They went to Belgium instead. And, of course, the prime minister at the time, Jean-Marc Eralt, Eralt, I don't know how to pronounce his name, said how pathetic these men were for fleeing to to save the money, to not be taxed 75% on anything above a million dollars a year. It's just absolutely absurd. And you would see the exact same thing happen in America. Although I'm sure it would be far faster because The rich of America probably don't seem to have the same connection. You know, there's not the same cultural heritage and pride in America necessarily than you might see in a France where the culture is so completely insular where you'd say, well, I don't know if I want to ever live anywhere else. If you're exceptionally rich in America, you can find plenty of places to live that are probably going to be just as fine for you until this whole thing blows over and they realize the horrible mistakes that they've made. However, we're not seeing that. Socialists in this country now, some 51%, I believe, of uh, millennials identify as socialist, democratic socialists. So who knows? The lessons of the past don't seem to have any repercussions on the ambitions of progressives. All right. Let's move on to another topic. How about we talk about... uh, God, it's just just nonstop absurdity today. This bill. Oh, my God. So the Democrats introduce a bill to shield unpaid federal workers from lenders and landlords. This is a bill that was put forth last week on Wednesday, and it was put forward by two Democrats. Of course, Brian Schatz, a senator from Hawaii. Goddamn Hawaii senators, man. Between this idiot and Hirono, they've really got a lockdown on just, like, what, a, what is wrong with that? Does poi make you retarded? Does eating that slop somehow damage your rate? Is the spam, is the high salt content in spam retarding senators in Hawaii? God. Anyway, Brian Schatz of Ohio, Ohio? Hawaii. I must have been eating the spam today. And Representative Derek Kilmer from Washington are both hoping to put forward this bill which would prohibit landlords and creditors from taking action against federal workers or contractors hurt by the shutdown who can't pay rent or loans. So essentially, as long as the shutdown's going on, you don't have to pay your rent to your landlord. You don't have to pay your credit card bills. You don't have to pay your house loans. You don't have to pay your car loans. Because as we're seeing here, government workers are a protected class. You know, the left loves to talk about these protected classes of people that we have to stand up for. Well, clearly now, these 800,000 civil servants, as they're called, although, goddamn, uh, the number of times I've been served by a civil servant where I would deem their service less than adequate or something akin to being kicked in the balls 700 times consecutively, you know, more often goes to that kick in the balls side of things rather than uh, complimentary. But, I just just can't get over the fact that we are clearly seeing, writ large, that the government views its own people as vastly superior and more important than the general public and the private citizen. Because why else can you put forward a bill like this? And you even have Marco Rubio, a conservative, who you'd think would be for shrinking the government. Of course, we know Marco Rubio is not that man. But you'd think it'd be all for keeping the shutdown active, streamlining the government, and would say, well, no, you know, we've got private institutions and private citizens which need to be paid. You know, if this, any other business, any any, any citizen, if you're not in this protected class of government drones, if you make an agreement, if you sign a contract between you and a person or you and another business, you don't have the option of not paying that because you happen to lose your job. Now, you might have a personal relationship with somebody where you can work that out. And in which case, good. If you have that business relationship, and often businesses do, you'll have deferred payments. Or they'll say, okay, we can understand. We can extend you credit for an extra couple months. Or they'll say, okay, instead of paying month by month, can we do a net 90 payment? Because right now we're waiting for some bills to be fulfilled on Aaron. Oftentimes, you'll have that understanding. And maybe you have that relationship with your landlord. But what if your landlord in this circumstance happens to be a retired old lady who's paying off her own mortgage and supplementing her income, her social security check or whatever it might be? Hopefully, hopefully she's not depending on that, but whatever it might be, let's say she depends on your income in order to pay her own mortgage. Well, she doesn't work for the fucking government, does she? So how is she going to pay off her creditor then? I mean, what we're going to see from this idiocy is a cascading waterfall of defaults on loans and payments. And we're going to see lenders who, they're not all going to be big banks, but we're going to see people that are private individuals that have made voluntary contracts that need to be fulfilled with these government workers go unfulfilled. They're going to go unpaid and we're going to see them default. So not only are we hurting the loaners at a whole and kind of undermining the very concept of contracts. But we're also specifically damaging private citizens who have opted to contract with government workers. So what's the result of this going to be? Well, I know for me, if I'm going to rent out a part of my house or if I'm going to have a a car loan or anything else, I might look a little bit closer to see whether that person's a government employee. Because the government's not promising to cover their loans eventually. No, no, no. You just go unpaid for this period of time. And while in a circumstance of like a car loan or something like that, maybe you could extend it and add on to the end of it. I don't know what the right be. I don't even know what, how the hell you'd work out this kind of circumstance. But in the case of a, like this way, this little old lady who lives in a house, simply tacking on a month of rent at the end of the month or the end of the term, whatever you're going to leave the house, that ain't going to fly. It's going to damage this woman's income. It's going to damage this woman's ability to live her life. And she'll be goddamned if she's going to go ahead and reach out to contract with any sort of government employee ever again. And now take that and times it by 800,000 people. And I'm curious to see what the economic impact's going to be, especially in areas. You know, you think about this, too. You know, there's a lot of large government facilities that may be located in areas where there might not be a huge economic hub around them. I mean, I don't know for sure, but there could very well be a town that's right next to a national park. And let's say that that's where all the income comes from. Tourism for the national park and all these park employees are out of work. Who's going to be paying these people? Now, of course, this is all hypothetical. But in the circumstances where you do have a government facility that the town is catered to because they know that that's a source of revenue for the town, the concept that you're not going to pay people their rent or their loans or anything else. you're not. They're, they're not allowed to, to sue you for those funds and have you fulfill that contract. And the fact that this is not only for the time period while this, this happens, it's not only during the shutdown, but also for 30 days after it. So even if the shutdown is resolved tomorrow, you're still on the hook for two months where you don't get your rent payment. So you can imagine the impact this could have on a town that depends on that sort of uh, relationship with a large government entity, which hey, you know, in one way, tough Teddy shouldn't should be shouldn't be relying on government that much, uh, whether that's uh, via socialism or via government employees, but uh, but still, it shouldn't be placing the burden on private institutions and private citizens to bail out the government when the government decides that it doesn't want to pay its people anymore because there's got some political interactions going on. But still, the central point here, just to reemphasize again, is that we are clearly seeing the government's preference for its own people, how every other private citizen is considered a secondary citizen compared to the sun-obfuscating glory that is the government worker. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Those epic words from Archilochus can sum up your ability to succeed or fail in business. I want to recommend Conversation Mat Time to our listeners as a way to hone your one-on-one conversation skills in a role-playing session that can help take you to the next level. During 25-minute sessions, you'll work through the best way to approach that raise, that interview, or that relationship with a practice professional that will provide the confidence and experience you need to get paid what you're worth or take that interpersonal risk you've never been able to conquer. Just like in jiu-jitsu, the difference between a novice and a black belt is mat time. Train to win. Visit conversationmattime.com and take advantage of a free 15 15-minute consultation just for listeners of this show. All right, welcome back to Electric Liberty Land, episode number 107. Again, show notes, lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL107. So last show, I mentioned that I wanted to get into a little bit of LA and California talk on this episode. So let's do that now, starting off with a little bit of excerpts from Gavin Newsom, the newly elected governor of California in one, was one of those predictable elections that has ever been held. Yeah, super liberal Gavin Newsom has given his inaugural address. And this took place on January 7th. So I'm just going to give a few highlights. It's very long. Uh, I mean, I I don't know how long it was in actual real-time speaking. I'm just reading the transcript of it, but it was like 10 pages. So we'll just highlight a few things. But the one thing that I really took away from this was the absolute unabashed leftist elitism. That is apparent and redundant throughout this entire goddamn shitty address that he gave. And what I mean by that, and you'll hear some of the language. I'll, I'll read it off to you, but just as this concept that the coastal elites, and you get this in New York and California, but you really get it in California. Like the assholes in San Francisco and the assholes in LA really combine to think of themselves as so much better than the rest of the country by leaps and bounds think that they are so superior that their ideas and way of thinking are so evolved that the rest of the nation must look to California as a beacon of intellectual light and that the nation must follow suit because as California goes, so goes human progress. I shit you not, this is really what these assholes think. And it's very evident, and I'll read you some excerpts. Here we go. So this is uh, fairly early in the speech. I'm going to skip around a bit, too, by the way. California has always helped write America's future, and we know the decisions we make would be important at any time. But what we do today is even more consequential because of what's happening in our country. People's lives, freedom, security, the water we drink, the air we breathe they all hang in the balance. The country is watching us. The world is waiting on us. And the future depends on us. And we will seize the moment. Now, <laughs> you can see what I'm talking about right there in this freaking language. California has always written America's future. Really? Well, California wasn't around for a long time, number one, uh, to help write America's future. So that's completely false. And in fact, the greatest times, I would say, uh, arguably in America's past, when most of the <laughs> most of the advances as far as liberty were created, California wasn't even a twinkle in someone's eye. It was California was like a little baby sperm. Still had to go a long way to get anywhere. But <laughs> you'll see, you know, they talk about what we do here is so consequential to the country, people's lives. And, and I had to laugh out loud at this and to freedom freedom. California actually thinks, actually this Gavin Newsom actually thinks that he is some defender for freedom, that he is somebody that's on the front lines fighting for freedom. When, if anything, California is one of the least free states in the entire nation, especially when it comes to gun rights, when it comes to taxation, when it comes to business and economic rights. I mean, you are talking about something that is stifling people not allowing them to be more free. The only freedom that California likes is the freedom for immigrants to come in unchecked and then take advantage of the offerings which our welfare state provides. So maybe that's what Gavin's talking about. Oh, but talking about this, you know, it, the world is waiting on us. The country is watching us. The country's watching you and they're making giant jerk-off motions with their hands, by the way. That's, I, I really really uh, presume that I would say 80% of America despises California and Californians, and they are very right to do so. So Governor Newsom continues. California is a giant engine of commerce, the most creative and entrepreneurial in the world. Now, of course, California is also very well positioned as a gateway to the West and has one of the largest and most busy ports of commerce. That obviously helps quite a bit. Additionally, California has bountiful natural resources, which also helps quite a bit. Additionally, California has some of the most croniest policies in helping technology companies to get where they are, including sweetheart deals with Tesla. We've got local uh, Los Angeles making incredibly sweetheart tax deals with uh, companies like Snapchat, Facebook, Google, etc. So quite a bit of crony capitalism at taxpayer expense as well in regards to this entrepreneurial spirit. And as I said before, trying to start a small business in Los Angeles is quite difficult, especially if you are building out any sort of facility. I have a client who has been in facility building hell for two goddamn years because he has had to go through all sorts of environmental tests, environmental inspections, uh, building inspections, flooring inspections. He's spent something along the lines of $120,000 simply on inspections and, uh, and bullshit at this point. So California and local city ordinances really go out of their way to make uh, trying to do anything a real pain in the ass, and we routinely see see businesses two years. It seems to be the standard. I'll see two years of empty storefronts or empty freestanding buildings as people try to renovate them and make them into viable shells for whatever they want to do. And if you want to build something new, oh boy, good luck, partner. Anyway, Newsom continues. Uh, We have the resources to ensure a decent standard of living for all. It's not a question of whether we can do this, but whether we will. Now, I would argue that, in fact, virtually any place, unless you're living in Antarctica, probably has the resources to ensure a decent standard of living for all. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody should get access to socialized healthcare, that everybody should have access to public schooling, that everybody should have access to any number of things which these liberals feel are necessities for life, for living, for uh, what they would call a decent standard of living. Because, of course, the standard for living is something that's completely subjective and also dependent on so many of these other misbegotten concepts that the left loves to embrace, like, for example, that everyone must have an equal outcome rather than inequality of opportunity. And even in that, Even an equal opportunity, I don't think is something that's a natural right. Because we seem to forget, well, I don't seem to forget. People in general seem to forget that opportunity is not always begotten from what the left likes to think, like by the fact that oh, people were exploited and conquered and whatever. Opportunity also comes from generations putting in hard work by people planning ahead for their financial future and the future of their children. So this concept that well everyone's got to have an equal opportunity and we have to make sure there's an even playing field for every individual when they go out there no fucking bullshit people go out of the way to work more 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 diligently to ensure their future have made correct decisions versus some people that go out there and fuck around and do nothing miss you know misallocate their time misallocate their money have vices that they may prefer to actually doing something that can ensure the future people that prefer to uh, to spend their time now rather than save their money for a, a future payoff later on. Henry Hazlitt talks quite a bit about that in his book. So again, this equality of opportunity and these, this ensuring that people have a decent standard of living, just such happy garbage that's based in complete, complete nonsense. All right. Then he goes on to say later on, skipping forward, make no mistake. There are powerful forces arrayed against us. Not just politicians in Washington, but drug companies that gouge Californians with sky high prices, a gun lobby willing to sacrifice the lives of our children to line their pockets. You'll know, you just love. I probably like that. A gun lobby willing to sacrifice the lives of our children. Who's safeguarding the lives of your children? You fucking idiot. You don't think if we, if, if we had no guns anywhere, you think that the, the America would be a safer place. Just recently, but in China, somebody stabbed some 20 children in a school. They're already talking about moving forward legislation in, in a couple of different states that would allow teachers to carry guns in the classroom. And it's fantastic. It's one of the best ideas that's out there. But it's like the gun, like, oh, they're sacrificing lives. Yeah, that's what it's all about. They sat down, they said, what's a, what's a child's life worth to us? What are they, three million? All right. All right. Let's sacrifice. Hey, guys, all we got to do is sacrifice some like 40 kids a year, and we're rolling in dough, baby. It's just so stupid, and of course, payday lenders. And you know, again, I'm referring to Tom Woods two times in a, a single conversation. But Tom did tackle the same issue recently because Gavin Newsom. One of the things Gavin Newsom is all up in arms against is payday lenders. Meanwhile, <laughs> I you know we're talking about and Tucker Carlson. I think was really against this too recently. Tucker Carlson. By the way, but what? what the, since when did Tucker Carlson decide that he was completely against libertarians and start? Buying into this nonsensical economic horseshit, attacking payday lenders and attacking capitalism for making America poor. I don't don't want to go off on a whole tangent about this. I have too much other shit to talk about. But it's just complete madness to presume, number one, that capitalism hasn't helped the, the base level of people succeed. I think capitalism is any way, shape, or form to blame for the denigration of American society, rather than saying, "Oh, perhaps it's in fact cultural, based upon uh, the less cheerleading for for single mothers and trying to prioritize having single parents and and uh, broken families be so heralded and made into heroes by the media, by movies, etc." Not to say, if you've had a hard time, you are a single mother. Good for you. Congratulations. But I've said time and time again, the most clear path to socioeconomic status going to the next level is a coherent family unit. And everything that's been done as far as the enticement from welfare programs that actually penalize people for reuniting with husbands, let's say the black community, if they went to prison and came home, they penalize that by taking away your welfare uh, funding. Because God forbid you have two, two people at home. To the drug war breaking up families, to social media getting involved with how people are now no longer content staying in a small town, getting married, living their life out there. I mean, all these factors come into play. But no, let's blame fucking capitalism. Idiot. Huh, but anyway, payday lenders, what? Hey, we're attacking this? If you're a, if you're an illegal immigrant that's coming to the town, all right, you might not even have access to, let's say, a social security number. If you don't have a social security number, you can't open a bank account. Now, if you can't open a bank account, you probably do need to rely on a payday lender. And you could say, oh, well, that's, you know, you're, you're taking far more money away from that paycheck than a normal bank would be. Well, yeah, they're, they're also taking a risk by engaging with people that are working illegally, or they're providing a service for people that happen to need money immediately that can't access it. So give me a break. If you're going off these, I had one time I had to use a payday lender, uh, back in my youth and I had to use it because it was an emergency. I needed that money immediately. I could not wait for the check to go and clear because it was some it was like right when I moved to California. And there was no way for me because there was like a you know, it, I had to wait like two weeks for every check to clear when you first open an account. And I said, This is my only option. I have to pay my rent, I have to pay my my bills, I need money to live off of. So payday lender was there for me. Thank you, payday lender. But people like Gavin Newsom don't seem to understand that these services provide a very, very high value for people that might be in a pinch and do rely on them. So why are we gonna why are we gonna try to eliminate them? <laughs> ah, moving on. We face serious challenges, undoubtedly. Some that have been deferred for too long. And that is hilarious because I'm gonna talk about the LA teacher strike text. <laughs> I'm talking about. Challenges that have been deferred for too long. Right now, California has a budget surplus. That surplus will be gone within, I think, probably about three years because we have an unprecedented amount of badly negotiated union pensions and union benefits that are due to come to fruition in the near future. And it will bankrupt California in the midst of California talking about how they want to socialize. Healthcare and and Gavin Newsom mentions that in his in his address how they want to provide healthcare for all. How are we going to pay for it? It's already been shot down as something that's incredibly expensive and impossible for the budget to compensate for <laughs> without without taxing everybody on a hundred percent of their income. But we're just it's just so funny these d- deferred too long these challenges. So now he's saying that we must run faster just to stay in place. Stagnant wages. Which is, by the way, stagnant wages is kind of funny because we're seeing astronomical growth in wages within the tech sector because of the crony capitalism I mentioned earlier. Costs that keep rising on rent, utilities, visiting the doctor. The rent costs and the utilities costs. Now, the utilities costs are also completely tied in with cronyism because there's simply one provider. So how are we going to combat that? You have one provider that the government is working hand-in-hand with. They don't allow the competition to come into play. And and even with, if you look at solar competition for electricity... The government actually required people they were using solar energy for a time period to pay money back into the system. You couldn't just have your own solar; you actually had to pay the money to put money to put solar back into the system. You can't make this stuff up. And of as course, as rent too. Again, chroma capitalism with these tech companies because they're affording to pay all these people an astronomical amount of money. They get sweetheart deals on on uh, the commercial spaces that they rent out, and then there's an like amplified demand for rent for people that can afford to pay vastly more than the average person. Plus you couple that with all of the crippling red tape, as I mentioned, trying to build anything in Los Angeles is completely crippling. Not only that, but anytime you build something, you have to have affordable housing in there. So you have rental units that now do not go for market rate. It's just, it's insane. But again, these people don't see the writing on the wall. They don't see the clear economic impact of these horrible policies that they've been making year after year. And I don't know what Gavin Newsom's solution for rent is, but I guarantee it's going to be something along the lines of taxing people more to provide subsidies to the, to the poor people. It's not going to have anything to do with making it far easier to build, with tearing down red tape, with removing regulations, removing restrictions on when and where and how tall you can build buildings. None of that's going to happen. Talks about the homeless epidemic, of course. Again. Tied in with everything I just talked about. And an achievement gap in our schools. Funny that he mentions that, considering the fact that the LA teachers are on strike now. But again, I get ahead of myself. I will wrap this up by highlighting one last bit from his speech. Pardon my page flipping. Skip ahead a little bit. Because it just... I I couldn't get over how funny it was. And it's this one line. In our home, working people deserve fair pay, the right to join a union, (laughs) the chance at a middle-class life. (laughs) Now, anybody in California, really anyone nationwide, talking about having the right to join a union as if that's something that has to be defended in liberal-ass, croniest union union-fucking-lobbyist California of all places in the world is absolutely hilarious. I mean, who's buying the shit? Who's, who's listening to this man speak and saying, yeah, you know, we don't have enough rights to unions here. I, if I want to go and join a union, where am I going to find one? You no, know, you throw a rock, you can hit a union. If I, if I go yell out my window right now, everybody with a union membership say, hey, guarantee, I'll hear 50 people down the fucking block go, hey. You get unions everywhere in California. That's why we have a budget crisis. That's why we have unfended and like pensions that are just coming up on us like some sort of monster out of the deep. We got the Kraken of pensions looming because unions have bankrupted the system. You've got lobbying groups that get in bed with these politicians. They make these sweetheart deals, which are impossible to fund. And as Gavin said, are deferred. Yes, they keep deferring them farther and farther down the line. They keep uh, rising debt at worse interest rates. And those things are going to come due. And there doesn't seem to be any lessons learned out of this. And we're seeing that play out right now with the California teachers. Actually, not even the California, the Los Angeles Teachers Union. They went on strike as of Monday of this week they rejected a six percent raise in pay which was due to take place over two years three percent this year three percent next year and decided that they wanted to uh, to go on strike regardless because they wanted so they say higher pay lower class sizes the average class size in los angeles is something like 40 or 40 to 50 students which is high and I don't know what, I, I didn't read all of their demands, but they're out there right now, striking and marching around. And I'm just here laughing because it's raining on them the whole time, which gives me joy. But these unions, these teachers unions are going on strike despite the fact that the average teacher in Los Angeles, now this is the average mind you. So there's probably people that are just starting out making less. There's probably people that have been in, uh, been in the industry for quite a long time, making vastly more, but the average teacher makes $73,000 a year. Now, you'd heard me say earlier that by estimates, the average income you would need to make for a household to be considered solidly middle class is, uh, and I misspoke earlier, it's actually $150,000. So if the average salary is $73,000, you are essentially solidly middle class. And in fact, you're even on the upper tier of that. But still, solidly middle class, making good money, you can live a good lifestyle, and Let's not forget the fact that teachers don't have to work three months out of the year. So if you're amortizing that cost, you're actually making 30% more money than you would be making if you had to work full time. And the benefits of that way, especially if you have children, because while other people have to pay for camp or pay for daycare or have to take time off of their work, their paid work. To be home with their kids over the three months of summertime, teachers don't have to do that. They get to be at home with their kids. Or they can opt to take on other optional sources of income, like being coaches, like teaching summer school, etc. So I don't cry any tears when I hear that the average teacher in L.A. makes $73,000. I'm sorry, but you're not winning any sympathy here. But not only that, is that these teachers are on strike because they demand that the, you know, they increase the budget for amount of pay that they get. And meanwhile, as we're talking about this budget crisis, they've got something as- just astonishingly expensive coming up in regards to unfunded pensions. And actually, as of right now, let me see here. Actually, this is a story that was from early in 2018, last year. So it's really gotten worse since then. But this is an L.A. Times story. And the California Teachers Pension Fund, or CalSTRS, has $87 billion in red ink right now. And that is based upon what they call conservative estimates that are given by the number crunchers within the organization, within the teachers group themselves. And what they're saying is that there is undoubtedly, quote unquote, fuzzy math that goes on within this these, uh... Organizations. Basically, kind of like we saw with the Pentagon, people pushing money around, uh, although the Pentagon actually has a surplus of money. (laughs) This is quite the opposite, wherein you're seeing money being shifted around to try to cover just how deeply in debt they are. And some analysts are saying that they may even be as far in debt and as far as these unfunded pensions go, to the extent it might be $1 trillion. $1 trillion. So... The teachers are going on strike and they're saying, well, LAUSD uh, or LA, uh, the district, they've got a $2 billion surplus right now, which is true. However, <laughs> as the people in the school district themselves are pointing out, that $2 billion is going to disappear within, I think they said, something like two or three years, because that's when all these retirees and all these pension benefits are going to come due. Not the full trillion, mind you, but something like $18, 20000000000 Now, on top of this, we have the issue where they're complaining about class sizes, right? And I understand they are higher than other parts of the country for reasons that I've spelled out in other podcasts, including the immigration issues that exist in California. But the school district has also spent 16% of its dollars on increasing, or I'm sorry, not I'm misstating that. They did a 16% increase in administrative staffing hires. Meaning that while they could have hired teachers, and this is the other thing that these, obviously, the teachers are demanding is more hiring of teachers to lower the class sizes. But while they could have hired teachers, they didn't. They hired administrators. Now, you might say, okay, well, maybe they needed more administrators to try to find out what the system's problems are. Fine, whatever. But we also have the issue wherein over the past few years, there's actually been a 10% decrease in the students at LA school districts comprised with or me, combined with that is also the fact that 4 out of 10 students don't end up graduating so you have a school district which has not you know hired any teachers in a little while you've got a school district that already is one of the most highly funded organizations in the entire country and 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 since something like 2015 to 2018, California's budget increase for education went up something like 20%. It was like the highest of any state uh, or any public school system in the country over that period. Unprecedented amount of money that's been spent on education in California. And we still get results which are substandard. The results as far as student testing are substandard. Graduation rates are substandard. And yes, Maybe the class size could have something to do with it. But if you look to places like Japan, they've got even bigger class sizes and they excel in every possible way. Graduation rates, testing scores, one of the best education systems out there. So what's the problem? Because I don't think it's going to be solved with paying the same teachers that seem to be inadequate at doing their job more money. That doesn't seem to be solving anything. We've debunked The concept that having too many students in the classroom is the reason because we can see other countries are doing it just fine with far better results. We've seen over time that like everything else, spending more money on it doesn't solve the problem. And there have been many studies done showing that, in fact, when it comes to government institutions, the more money spent actually sees far worse results over time. And we're seeing that with education, which has gotten far worse over time, despite Being one of the most well funded educational systems of any country in the world. We consistently rank in the bottom half. We're seeing that with efforts to increase people's productivity or uh, status of living with welfare reform, spending more on that than ever in the past. Poverty lines exactly the same. Same amount of issues exist. We're just spending vastly more money on it. But we're seeing these people strike, seeing the march. You're going to see more money thrown at it because this is after all California. We just heard Gavin Newsom spout his line of horse shit about making sure the education system's taken care of. So this is all going to result in higher taxes for me. It's going to result in the same budgetary crisis that's going on because you know, we're talking about unfunded pensions. We're talking about the power of unions that again, get these, get these people elected that just simply kowtow to whatever they want, want them to do. But I know, we already have this horrible unfunded pension issue. H- hiring more teachers is going to make that better or worse. What do you think? <laughs> I'm no doctor, but I'm going to guess it's probably going to make it worse. So anyway, that's that's uh, your California news minute because uh you know, we can't can't not talk about it. I'm here. It's pissing me off. Like I said, the only, the only silver lining for me is the rain. All right, let's wrap it up by talking uh, real quickly about two things. Number one is uh, this Gillette toxic masculinity ad. I'm not going to go crazy about it. I, I will say that I've read a lot of different articles having different takes. Most of the articles all right, that I've been seeing are from, maybe it's because I'm seeking them out more, but talking about the negative reactions that are occurring with this ad, which was put out, called uh, We Believe. And it takes on, like I said, toxic masculinity. That said, And the concept of it is not necessarily saying that men are bad because it's showing examples of men opting not to bully or not to uh, be violent and not to do this and not to that, but saying that we can be better. You know, We can be better men. Are you the best a man can get? But still, the commercial mentions toxic masculinity within it. And that, for me to steal a phrase from the left is enough to trigger me to the point where I am disgusted by it and I will take part in a boycott of Gillette's products because I cannot stand, of all things, I can't stand brands adopting social justice posturing. And it's like they do this to appeal because... All the media is liberal. All of the trade publications are liberal that write and cover these industries, especially advertising, which, again, is a very strong basis in New York and California. So it's all liberal jagoffs in in advertising, which is why you see this kind of shit roll out. But, you know, I saw an article in Reason, which uh, annoyed me by Robbie Sove. Talking about how, you know, this is, we're, why are people getting upset about this? You know, it's, it's, it talks about toxic masculinity, but it's saying it's a good thing not to do it and how we should be better. And, we, and why are people getting upset about this? It's like, he, I mean, does he not understand that at this point in time, when we see, especially from a libertarian point of view, when we see this kind of social justice posturing come into play, it might, it's not necessarily that the message that they're sending is a bad one telling people not to take part in domestic violence. Fine. But when you adopt the language, you become the sycophant to these leftists and their obnoxious ways of behaving. You know, when we've got social justice tied into so many things, so many personal attacks on people, so many careers ruined, so much blackballing within various industries, so much uh, social media censorship, that's the kind of shit that lies beneath the surface of this social justice movement. And that's why, Robbie and Reason, Reason, which is, of course, left-leaning at this point, libertarian lefties, that's why, Robbie, we are entitled to be upset. That's why we can object to it. And he says, you know, hey, they're a private company. You can boycott them. I will be boycotting them. But we need to boycott these companies. We need to stand up and say enough is Enough. When it comes to this shit, because the more we allow it, the more we allow this kind of concept to go forward, the more we allow this pervasive thought control to take part in our society, to allow people to virtue signal and feel as though they're making a difference by, like I said, going out and trying to ruin someone's career because of something they consider a made up term, by the way, of toxic masculinity something which I would argue is insane on its very face because you need masculinity, you need men. Women, in fact, want masculine men. (laughs) And just to label something toxic because you happen to be a rabid feminist doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It means that you don't like it because you have your own specific uh, way of thinking, your brain, which happens to be an aggressive one, a resentful one, and by that method, you want to label anything that you don't specifically agree with as evil, wrong, Or toxic rather than taking it at face value or having a rational discussion about it. And that is the core concept is that all of these commercials, all of this adoption of the language goes against rationality. It goes against. Reason It goes against ha- being able to have a logical, rational discussion with somebody about a topic on its merits, based upon facts, based upon science, based upon even just general understanding between people. Maybe it's couched in the concept of history and achievement. None of that exists or is possible when you have this social justice, fear-mongering, uh, angsty vitriol that is continuously spewed forth. And allowing advertisers and brands to take this on to gain some credit with the rabid left is not something that we should support. Okay, last topic of the night. This is lo- much longer than I thought. I'm getting a little bit, a little bit of a tired voice here. I don't drink enough water. Uh, I want to talk about Syria. I want to talk about Bolton, and I want to talk about Pompeo because we have seen actually. I, I was surprised. You know, I Donald Trump had said he wants to pull the troops out of Syria, said, God damn right, do it, man. Then we see a little bit of hemming and hawing. We, see in, uh, we saw Bolton say, oh, well, that's not necessarily going to happen. And he's, he's doubled down on that. Even though there are troops being pulled out, you know, it's a slow process, but there are troops being pulled out. We're seeing Turkey get involved. So this is a real thing that's happening. Kudos to Trump for that. But at the same time, we still got Bolton going around and reassuring our allies that Oh no no, we're going to be very involved in Syria still. Don't you worry. Uh, don't you worry at all, little miss. We're going to be there. We're going to be killing people. We're going to be uh, involved as 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 much as we could be, and it's something that has absolutely fucking nothing to do with us. So you got Bolton out there on the one side. Then you have Mike Pompeo, who was in Egypt giving a speech in Cairo recently, and uh, had taken some jibes at Obama during the speech because Obama had said that he regretted some of the actions that America took in the Middle East in the past. Now, as we saw. Obama was a complete fucking liar because he continued George W. Bush's atrocious policies within the Middle East, including starting to assist Saudi Arabia in the ongoing genocide in Yemen, which, of course, President Trump has also supported. But at least Obama gave some lip service to it, enough lip service to get him that Nobel Prize. Mike Pompeo goes in the same same place in, in Cairo, Egypt, and he's giving a speech. However, he doesn't back down off anything. He has no reservations, no, uh, no doubts about America's influence in the Middle East, no apologies for the amount of destabilizing we've done, for the assassinations we've been uh, complicit in, to the overthrowing of dictators. And then, of course, everybody's got to talk about the continuing threat of Iran, or Iran, even though we're basically responsible for the state of Iran, because we went in there and overthrew the Shah at the time. And this was what, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago now, right? Again, leading to a destabilization that has resulted in a government that is now in complete opposition of the United States, and for good reason. Again this, you know, I, I, I'm making fun of the liberals for not taking any sort of lessons from history on their social side of things. What the fuck is wrong with the Republicans where they can't learn a lesson from the history of military involvement in the Middle East? Mike Pompeo says in this speech too, he says, America's a force for good there. You know what? If you ask 99% of the people throughout any nation, excluding Israel, in the Middle East, I bet they disagree with you. Even in Iraq, while some people might say, well, we, we do appreciate uh, you ousting Saddam, which again, maybe, maybe 50-50 on that even because the ousting of Saddam gave rise to all sorts of horrible uh, terrorist groups like al-Qaeda, like ISIS. But I'm sure that people would probably be pretty torn on whether or not our influence was a good thing there as we continue to occupy their country, as we continue to occupy Afghanistan, a country that had nothing to do with us, because we were attacked by people in the majority from Saudi Arabia and the uh, Arab Emirates on 9-11. But, oh, let's go in and and blow up the Taliban, you know, because, because why not? So I'm sure the people in Afghanistan don't consider us any sort of liberators. They don't hold us in strong regard, especially as we go and continue to fail militarily there. As the Taliban continues to take more of the country and actually has more territory now than they did when we went and overthrew them. I mean, I just, how do you not learn a lesson? And how are we a force for good when we continuously oversee drone bombings of innocent people, when we are continuously having an occupying military presence within these countries, when we are continuously training what we think are going to be reliable police and military units that then either surrender and join the terrorists which we have created by virtue of being in this place and bombing all these people for so fucking long, or they simply turn their arms over to them when they meet any sort of resistance because really they don't care. It's their country, but this isn't their war. They didn't start it. And it's much easier for them to simply say, hey, look, if you're going to leave me and my family alone, I don't want to fight you. Here's my guns. Leave me in peace. I got goats to tend to. So Mike Pompeo, I hope he's wrong. I hope to God he's wrong in regards to military presence from the United States continuing. I, I, I pray that Trump continues this withdrawal from Syria by pulling people out of Iraq, by pulling people out of Afghanistan, by pulling us out of Africa, even though last week he obviously sent soldiers to Gabon, 85 soldiers. But I just, I don't know, I got to hope that Trump's a pragmatist when it comes to seeing the evidence of our failures in the Middle East through this continued, completely illogical policy, because clearly the Republican establishment is continuously for it. The Democrats have given up any any pretending to be the anti-war party. We can see that by evidence of people attacking on the left, uh, all these leftists attacking Rand Paul, because God forbid he wants to have medicine that's a free market concept. Uh, Meanwhile, he's also staunchly anti-war, one of the most outspoken people in reigning in the Yemen genocide. But, you know, that doesn't matter to the left because, you know, what's war got to do with it, right? All right, guys, that's going to wrap it up. By the way, I was talking about our pride. You can join that at patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. And I was talking about Conspiracy Corners. This week should be a fun one. This is going to drop very soon within the next day or two. I sadly will not be on the show because I had to record this and uh, Mark and the other lions are recording that right now. But the uh, Conspiracy Corner topic for our pride is Bigfoot. So, you know, that's going to be a hell of a show. Uh, Always entertaining as people drunkenly debate the pros and cons of whether or not Bigfoot exists. And, uh, you know, for me personally, I say he does exist. But just like with Bird Box, a movie which, by the way, sucked. If you look at him, you go crazy and kill yourself. And that's why we don't have proof. Boom. Blow it up. All right, guys, that's it. From me, Brian McWilliams, from the Lions of Liberty and from Electric Liberty Land. Always stay plugged into Liberty.